You don't make a name as a cyberpunk by how you live. Hi, I'm Jay Gray. I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Spivey. And today on Anonymous, we talk about cyberpunk edge runners. Hey everybody, we thought we'd give you a little surprise today, and we've invited a, a very special guest on, a, a personal close friend to the podcast that has in fact secretly been on every single episode <laughs> of the cast, just not saying anything. Ah. Welcome, Jay, first time, not really every single podcast, Cray. Yeah, that long, long time lurker, first time speaker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's my bad has been going. I, I gotta say, I was grooving to that, grooving to that intro. Isn't it great? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, one of the advantages of picking up a humble bundle full of royalty-free music. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Well, while we joke, that was one of the, the big discussion points early on. It's like, what should the opening theme song be? I was saying that Eddie should just sing something every single time. And he was like, you know what? Let's just instead use this great other music that I found. Right, because we actually want listeners, so it's probably better if we actually just use music that exists. I mean, it, it, it's fair. It's fair. And you know, the big problem with public domain music is that the music may be public domain, but most people don't realize this, I think. The recording of the music may be copyrighted. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's always yeah, so tough. Like Beethoven's concerto is public domain, but a particular performance by an orchestra is going to be protected by that orchestra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like uh, you can get you have to be careful because the Mona Lisa is public domain, but a photograph of the Mona Lisa is not. Yep. Oh, IP law. Yeah. It's, it's All fun. episodes ultimately come back to IP law. <laughs> it, it, they really do. It, well, it's funny. Um, I'm going to tell you a, a, a very brief story because it's just how the world works and your listeners won't care. Um, <laughs> but uh, long ago, I was in a college city and living in a college student shared apartment with a bunch of other people uh fast forward years later i'm working on cyberpunk by the way hello everybody i am the line manager for cyberpunk red which is the latest incarnation of the cyberpunk role-playing game the original role-playing game of the dark future upon which cyberpunk 2077 and therefore edge runners is based uh, so i'm working for our tells games i'm working on cyberpunk i come across uh, a note that someone is working on a big presentation to the international ip law association whatever that is actually called i don't remember mm-hmm. and it's on the their their topic is cyberpunk the video game and all the stuff that comes from it oh and wow specifically uh it coordinates the fake ip that's in the game because in the game you have uh companies and mm-hmm. products that are not real and how do you uh and how do you protect those things from being used by other people when they're within the game itself, when they're not real, you have no actual product. Like trademark law requires you to actually produce things, for right. example. Um, so, uh, and then I, you know, I looked up and it turns out that person was the person I lived with <laughs> back in college. <laughs> so I got to reconnect with an old friend that way. It was very fun. This industry awesome. is so small. Yeah. All right. Since we, we are officially on air and we're working now, because yes. this is a job that Eddie and I do, and we make bukus and bukus of zero dollars. Yes. Um, Doesn't let's take a professional approach. So if I, a random schmo on the street that only read historical fiction and historical books, 
and had a deep love of that had n- and had no idea what cyberpunk was what is cyberpunk how dare you call me out on that um <laughs> sorry uh so let's 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 make the difference then are you talking little c cyberpunk as in the genre or big c cyberpunk as in this particular franchise i'm starting with little c then i was going to subtly transition into big c by making like a big joke and show of it but since you've like shot a nail through my joke uh both oh i have to be careful my phone actually auto corrects automatically to the big c it's very annoying i've typed <laughs> it so much let's see uh little c cyberpunk uh that is a that's a it's tough to define a genre you know fantasy is easy in a way because it's it's fiction fiction with magic Cyberpunk is a genre which arguably started in either the late 70s or early to mid 80s, depending on who you decide. If you decide, for example, if Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is a uh, predecessor or an origin point for the genre, it is mm-hmm. uh, near, generally near modern future. Uh, takes place uh, as uh, the old Max Hedrum show used to say, 20 minutes into the future. Yes. <laughs> And it is generally dystopian. Uh, generally, it deals with, uh, depending on, now this is interesting, depending on whether you are looking at American cyberpunk, Japanese cyberpunk, or English cyberpunk, for example, mm-hmm. there's three different branches there. Uh, it deals with a power of some sort that is out of control and authoritarian to an extreme in American cyberpunk that tends to be corporations. Mm-hmm. And uh, out of control capitalism in Japanese and English cyberpunk, it is often... Uh, either the government or extreme criminal elements, depending on uh, Japanese cyberpunk, I think varies the most. Uh, mm-hmm. If for British cyberpunk, English cyberpunk, you're thinking like Judge Dredd, yep. uh, where it's uh, extreme authoritarian governments uh, born out of uh, uh, Thatcherism. Uh, here in the United States, uh, we tended to look at how corporations were gro- growing uh, and gobbling each other up. And so there was that fear. Uh, in the end, I think cyberpunk is a way to explore modern fears in a science fiction lens that's recognizable because it's in the near future, but still separated. So there's a, enough distance to make it feel a little safe uh, to experience. It doesn't feel like, oh God, I'm living this right now quite as much. It tends to involve cyberware of some kind. In other words, replacement of human body parts with uh, cybernetics often involves uh, a matrix or uh, internet in which one can dive into, uh, possibly because one of the seminal works of the genre was Neuromancer, which was all about a guy who could dive into the net Tron style. Uh, And um, it tends to involve that overarching uh, authoritarian uh, someone you don't matter because the world is controlled by uh, higher power of extreme measures and all they care about is being rich or being in charge or being powerful yeah that sounds that sounds about right to me little c cyberpunk um i've always found it interesting that you mentioned the the three kind of branches cyberpunk which i largely subscribe to as well um but in my head it kind of boils down to american cyberpunk ultimately stems from trickle down economic fears Mm-hmm. Uh, British cyberpunk ultimately stems from fears of Margaret Thatcher, and Japanese cyberpunk ultimately stems from trauma involving the, the atomic bomb drop. I think there's there's a lot of that. There's also uh, with Japanese cyberpunk the at the time uh, the what happens when you are a rising power in the world, which Japan was yeah. a rising economic power at the time, which leads to uh, how in Western cyberpunk we tend to get uh, what they call the yellow peril problem. Mm-hmm. 
which is Japan was an economic rising power at the time, and there was a lot of tension and concern about it in the U.S., especially in the car industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- that is reflected in a lot of 80s cyberpunk and waterfalls down to the modern day. So even in Japan, uh, the problem of large growth at the time, I think, fuels it. Uh, and you get it in little things. There was um, an anime short about uh, the robot care of senior citizens in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was it was comedy. It was parody. And it was about how this uh, old man, I think, had a cybernetic robot bed. Uh, AI driven old robot bed and it went out of control and he's zooming all over the city mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know so there's dealing with that as well the, the extreme economic and technological growth the world was experienced but Japan in specific was experiencing at the time I will say however I'm not an expert in Japanese cyberpunk uh, you really should go to the experts in the country and the essays they've written for more information there no absolutely um, but it, it's been one of the things I always find interesting about cyberpunk is, is one of the earliest examples of kind of a of a global genre kind of erupting in three different places roughly simultaneously and then quickly cross pollinating. Yes, um, um, because like British cyberpunk, like you said, really stems from kind of 2080, which is late 70s British comics, um, uh, and then British writers and American sci-fi writers starting to kind of cross pollinate a little bit in late 70s, early 80s, but. Um, Japanese cyberpunk was just starting to, Japanese media was starting to be imported in the early 80s. And so each branch saw something in the other branches and, oh, yes, that, that resonates. And then so they quickly started influencing each other, which some people argue that cyberpunk effectively died like two years after it started because then when it became cross pollinated, it stopped being branched and stopped expressing the same fears and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I, I guess it. But to me, somewhat, okay, uh, a good example of this is uh, Cowboy Bebop. Yes, uh, is a kind of cyberpunky, but not quite. It's it's it uses cyberpunk elements, mm-hmm. uh, but B uh, has an amazing jazz opening. Yes, done by an amazing Japanese jazz band. I don't think uh, now now there is something to be said for appropriation of black music, which I'm sure you guys have covered or talked about before, um, and the way that we turn. Uh, that into a white primary industry here in the United States, but I don't mm-hmm. think that a Japanese band doing jazz kills jazz, for example, because it's cross-pollinating. I think it's That's fair. Just, just a weird thing. I don't. I don't think cyberpunk is dead. I think cyberpunk has evolved. Um, and there's you know cyberpunk, post-cyberpunk, hope punk, and then the tendency. This is this is the water the watergatification of the word punk. Where yes. uh, a genre now is something plus punk, and and where you know in a political scandal something plus gate, and uh, I, I'm not particularly fond of that myself, but I think that cyberpunk's influence, uh, cyberpunk's biggest problem as a genre is that it's been sublimated in much the way steampunk has, mm-hmm. where you have things with elements of cyberpunk, say um, science fiction show, very popular, brain freezing has a role playing game from Green Ronin. Ronin, sorry. Oh, uh, um, uh, altered. No, um, not altered point. carbon. Though that's probably another example. Uh, Eclip- no. I want to say Eclipse Phase. No, no not that's. Phase. Uh, but point being is that you'll see in a lot of science fiction moments of cyberpunk or cyberpunk aesthetic or cyberpunk elements or elements that originated in the genre. Much like today, you'll often see steampunk in fantasy. Just fantasy's go-to for adding technology tends to be a steampunk um, approach. Right. And so uh, 
cyberpunk as a whole, it's getting harder to find what is and isn't because there's so many things that cross over the boundaries, but that's fine. That's just how society and art evolves. Are you, in fact, almost saying that cyberpunk is becoming genreless? Boom! That is fantastic. This, you, this, is, this is what Chris brings to the show. This, this is this is your your metal moment. <laughs> I had to. I'm sorry that you, no, you cool. guys were on point and it was great, <laughs> and I was engaging. And then the joke popped in my brain even as you were going, and I was like, "Chris, don't do it. No, don't you do gotta it. Resi- resist the joke." So, uh, did you want to move on to the big C? Or did you talk? Yeah. Yeah. Just for time concerns, yeah. Sure. So Big C Cyberpunk, uh, in the uh, very late 80s, around 1988, Mike Pondsmith and the Brain Trust at our Tales of Games. He'll be the first, by the way. Mike will be the first to say, I didn't do it alone. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a team effort, and it always has been a team effort, like any company-driven uh, franchise, uh, from Spider-Man to uh, Vampire the Masquerade. It starts mm-hmm. with a single person often, but expands as more people come in. So uh, they created, uh, Mike uh, realized, uh, essentially Mike saw Blade Runner, uh, which is also a pivotal work in the genre. He saw Blade Runner and he couldn't get out of his head. And he said, hey, uh, this concept makes a great game. And up until that point, science fiction role-playing games in the United States had been mostly high fantasy, uh, sorry, high science fiction uh, or... uh, uh, hard science fiction, uh, Traveler being the biggest example of it, spaceships and warp drives uh, mm-hmm. and so forth. Star Trek and a little bit of Star Wars, but mostly Star Trek style. So what Mike brought in was he said, okay, let's go 20 minutes in the future. And he created Cyberpunk, just Cyberpunk at the time, the role-playing game of the dark future. Uh, in a box set, came with a couple of booklets and some dice and uh, started from there. Uh, it did very well. This was not Artel's Rain Games' first product, uh, but it was one of their big, they're probably their biggest seller to date. And they said, oh, well, we've learned a lot and we can see where we expand. And so the next step was a few years later in, I think, 91, they put out Cyberpunk 2020, which is the edition everybody knows. Mm-hmm. It's technically 2.0.2.0 because it's a little play on versions there. Uh, in case you, it worked, makes more sense if you can. If it's a visual people, joke, yeah. The, the, your podcasters will not flash it on your screen. <laughs> um, so, uh, and that was a expanded version with uh, uh, more play tested rules, uh, rules that have been play tested for a couple of years, and uh, uh, expanded on. It grew from there, and also a, a more comprehensive setting. It grew from there, and it grew from being more or less like the original Traveler. Vaguely settingless. There was an example setting in the first one, the Night City, uh, but it was vaguely settingless and that you could do whatever you wanted. It was more of a genre simulator. But as it went on, it became here's Night City, here are the corporations in the world, and that's that's just a natural progression. You can't continue writing a RPG and not give examples setting-wise if you're avoiding setting entirely, unless you're avoiding setting entirely. And so it grew from there. Uh, there was several books uh it was known very much for its style over substance uh mantra uh, that was mm-hmm. you know the, the big rule style over substance and the idea being that it and it grew very much out of the very 80s you know everyone had to it mattered how you looked uh rockers could change the world uh, streets of fire kind of thing uh gangs of uh, uh the warriors in the way the poser gangs 
came out and it grew. There were many books put out. And then uh, in the 90s, we had something called Magic the Gathering, mm-hmm. which was great. People like Magic the Gathering. God, I remember made, that game. Whatever happened to it? Yeah, it, it, made, it, made, it made a certain company quite a bit of money. But then everybody was like, oh, we need to make card games because that's where the money is. Yep. And so everybody did. And no one remembered I am patting my Doctor Who card game right now, by the way. No oh, one, bastard. No one remembered what happened in the uh, early 80s with the video game market in which uh, uh, everything, you know, you overloaded. There were suddenly so many card games and card games are actually kind of expensive to make mm-hmm. because they require a lot of art and art is expensive. Uh, art is, in fact, here's a secret of the industry. Art is the most expensive single thing you can have on a book other than possibly printing. Yep. Especially yeah. these days, but yeah. Yes, especially these days. Well, I don't know. I would now argue that printing may be more expensive than art. Printing, yeah, printing at this point because just factors. Uh, so the industry collapsed. Uh, basically, all these distributors popped up to sell the cards, and all these game shops popped up to sell the cards, and then people stopped buying the cards because there were just so many of them, and you could only move so much product, and distributors collapsed, stores collapsed, companies collapsed. Uh, several companies uh, went under at around that time, FASA, uh, West End Games, and mm-hmm. so forth. And uh, our Talzorian games kind of went quiet for a while. Uh, there was a brief resurgence, and there was a Cyberpunk V3. Yes, that's the one with the doll art, in which they Mike tried to take a more transhumanistic approach because you know it seemed like the genre was evolving that direction. It didn't go over so well for multiple reasons. Artel's uh, uh, Rain Games went dark again. It never went dead. It would still sell, for example, reprints. Uh, mm-hmm. But it wasn't until uh, more recently, uh, with the release of 2077, uh, the release of Cyberpunk Red, our new edition, the release of the Witcher tabletop role-playing game, that we've come up with Cyberpunk Red, that new edition, which takes place in 2045, which is halfway between the 2020s that everyone knows from before and 2077, the video game, because Mike really wanted to tell the story of how the world went from one extreme in 2020 to another extreme in 2077. Uh, that's just how, what it is. Cyberpunk it, Red is a game. It's available now. We recommend you buy it. it uh, it's been played by many people, uh, possibly one or two people on this podcast have done some cool writing for it. <laughs> I know it's not me. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, I'm it's deeply not. aware of how it's not me. No, it's not, Eddie. Actually, I was, I, I will, I'm going to admit, I was actually going to try to tap you for this book we're currently working on, but the time frame was in the middle of your move. Oh, and I didn't yeah, want to, yeah. I didn't want to, you know, add to your stress. So no, I, I appreciate that. I'll wait to the next one to try to get Eddie on board for something. Woo. So, uh, spoilers, I'm writing on a Cyberpunk Red book. Hey, everybody. Actually, yeah, by the way, Chris, this is this is first announcement. Chris Spivey uh, is, in fact, writing on two Cyberpunk Red books. Wow. <laughs> so, my, my thing about no longer doing freelance work, yes. uh, I made an exception when Jay asked. Otherwise, you could, if people want that, nah, wow, I didn't really expect to be like promote myself now um if people want me to write on their stuff feel free to email me i may or may not accept i have very high rates i am a i would say i'm a joy to work with if you like detailed questions and answer periods it absolutely is wonderful <laughs> to work with chris uh it's actually nice to work with someone who asks me questions before they send me uh, a thousand words which i then had to say okay the central premise of this 500 words here 
is completely incompatible with the lore. You got to start again. Because as a hint from a as a publisher and a writer and a freelancer, it is better to communicate with whoever you're working with early on, so you both can reach an understanding and agreement. It saves you time and frustration. It saves them time, money, and energy, and will potentially get you hired again later. Yeah. Uh, what's it? Uh, Neil Gaiman. 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 I always don't know how to pronounce Neil. his last name. Neil. Uh, Neil, the Sandman guy, uh, <laughs> is fond of posting a what he calls the 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 comic book writer uh, Venn diagram, which is uh, uh, one circle is easy to work with, one circle is very good, and one circle is on time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you can hit two or three, two of those three, uh, chances are you'll get work again in the future. Yep. Completely agree. Yeah. And wow. I am always on time. Yes. Lots of questions. So, so uh, Cyberpunk 2077, the video game, is based on Cyberpunk well, 2020. Sorry, Jay, before you go yes. on, because yes. you're, you're, you're on target, and I oh go out God, of my no, way. Oh, my God, no, that can't be right. Right. So go out of my way to make sure we don't get too professional, because people come to this podcast for that home feeling of hanging out with their friend that doesn't know what they're doing, but doesn't stop doing it anyway. Wait, wait, wait. I'm and not on NPR? <laughs> I could try to emulate those dulcet tones if you want, but this isn't this American life. Oh, uh, if only we talk about cyberpunk edge runners and the industry falling apart. Oh, that was that was lovely. That, that <laughs> I, was lovely. I actually did, I did study radio for a, a brief moment in my life. So yeah, I just wanted to say that I had the joy of meeting Mike Pondsmith this year, who is a personal hero of mine. And one of the inspirations for me to get up and write and try to do TTRPGs. Me too, actually. Me too, actually. Um, I mean, not the meeting him this year, but the other part, yes. I, I, I did. I have met him this year uh, several times because uh, I work for him. Though I don't work in the same place as him. We're on opposite sides of the country. I telecommute. Uh, but he, his work specifically on Castle of Falkenstein, uh, another of his games. Yes. Uh, uh, and on, in my opinion, the... The, the height of his work personally uh, is what inspired me to get into game design and writing. And I was about to make a similar point that Castle Wolkenstein was one of the, the greatest books out there. And it, and it should be something that you all should consider making a second edition of. I, you know what? I agree with you. And if many, 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 many people would commit to buying it, I'm sure that we could. I know. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about any of that. We're here to talk about cyberpunk and yeah. say how awesome Mike is. So I've, yes. I've done Two out of two of those things, so yes. please proceed. So, yeah, Mike Pondsmith uh, is, A, a uh, one of the old school game creators, one of the OGs, as they mm. say, uh, from the 80s, uh, him, Steve Jackson, uh, and many, many others who are unfortunately no longer with us uh, now. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Sabita. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, that's true, he is. Uh, and uh, I have never met him. I have met Steve Jackson. Uh Greg Stafford. Greg's, no, oh, Greg Stafford's not rest, longer with us. Rest, yeah. rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, may his memory be a blessing. Uh, going going forward, sorry, uh, Mike has, among other things, in addition to running a company uh, and uh, being uh, a game designer and an award-winning one, he is in the Gamma Hall of Fame or the Origins Hall of Fame uh, as uh, a game designer. Uh, he is one of, I believe, two... Uh, people of color and there might be more than two black people him and eric are both in at the moment so hopefully that will change in the future they need to diversify that list in my opinion um he has been president of gamma 
Uh, and while he was president of Gamma, he, he negotiated a settlement between uh, the aforementioned Kevin and Wizards of the Coast, which gave them the money they needed, or freed up the money they needed from lawsuits to publish a certain card game. Which is an as, interesting story. As a former vice president of Gamma, that is a monumental feat that in and of itself should be awarded. Yes. Uh, and uh, he was uh, an executive at Microsoft in the early Xbox days. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, if you have the audio files for Mech Commander, the first one, I believe, uh, you will find him voicing the character named Steel, uh, and you can get that as your ringtone. It's amazing. Uh, at Mike at Pondsmith, it should be noted, has one of the best voices in gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he 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 is. Uh, you will hear him in 2077 if you listen to uh, Moro Rock Radio. Uh, he is the DJ in there, and he does these wonderful, expansive conspiracy theory based on cyberpunk lore uh, rambles. So good. So, uh, but 2077. Basically, some guys in Poland played the Polish edition. There was a Polish edition of 2020 back in the day. They loved it. When it came time to expand from going to Witcher, they wanted to do science fiction. They said, hey, what about this? We love this. Uh, Mike likes to joke that five people in Poland play it, but luckily they founded a video game company. <laughs> uh, and from there, uh, obviously, 2077, uh, video games have more reach than role-playing games, except for one. And uh, we all know which one I'm talking about. Yes. Possibly two, uh, if you want to count uh, the, the vampire, the masquerade in there too. Uh, but video uh, video games has much more reach, and since then there have been comic books, there have been statues, and more importantly for this conversation, there has been the first anime based directly on a Western RPG product, Cyberpunk Edge Runners. Excellent. For those of you who are saying, uh, but Lotus War. No, you know, that was based on an actual play, yes, uh, on a live, whatever, I can't remember what they call them, the, the write-ups of the live plays they do uh, okay. over in right. Japan. I, I was about to I say, can't. wait, isn't there something else? But you're right, that but was not a direct reference. That, that's not really direct. I'm not absolutely certain they were playing Dungeons & Dragons. I know there is actually a Lotus War RPG now. I actually, I do know a bit about that piece. Um, uh, uh, all signs point to them playing, probably actually playing Tunnels and Trolls. Yep. Well, there uh, because goes. So, I found out that Tunnels and Trolls is way bigger in Japan than D and D is. I will I will happily share this with Tunnels and Trolls then. Mm-hmm. Tunnels and Trolls is a is a underrated gem of the early RPG days. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think and, you're right. That was also more of a. It wasn't ex- explicitly a Tunnels and Trolls brand thing. This is the first explicitly brand explicitly based off of a Western RPG that that I'm aware of. Yeah, and it shares a continuity with the video game and with the role-playing game mm-hmm. and now that you've made that great segue to get us to cyberpunk edge runners mm-hmm. would you like to talk about the first episode season one episode one hopefully there's a second season yeah, okay. um so there will not be oh. from trigger specifically i cannot say whether there will never be but trigger like many anime studios plans their projects out long in advance if you ever go to like wikipedia and you'll see every year they've got a different anime uh, many of these studios, mm-hmm. uh, they you know generally don't do second seasons on things like this. Uh, sometimes okay. the property will wander to another studio. Um, sometimes, in fact, here's a little secret of the anime uh, industry that anime fans already know, so it's not really a secret, is that often you'll see a second season and it's done by a completely different studio. 
it's same writers. Uh, it is uh, Pokemon's Water Across a couple of studios, for example. Now that you mention that, I, I did kind of know that, but I never put those pieces together. So that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So but, similar to how a, an American television show sort of shops it around once a series has been canceled on one network to move it to a different network. Oh, that, that, world. That's often the case, um, and sometimes uh, that's I think changing too. Like I think season uh, as uh, anime gets bigger in the world and people demand more content. Like for example, uh, Spy Family. Uh, I think, you know, the new season's coming out from the same studio. Yeah, I think uh, One often, Piece has stayed with the same studio for a few years now. Yeah. So uh, that's the thing. Uh, so I cannot say there will not be any more cyberpunk anime. I would love for there to be. But of Edge Runner specifically by Studio Trigger, there will probably not be a second season. But I'm glad to talk about it. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying uh, the... the CDPR, uh, CD Projekt Red, Projekt Red, if you want to be more more Polish, uh, showed us the anime back in February. Uh, we uh, all got together. Uh, the company was nice enough to fly me out to Washington State to see this. We watched it with the subtitles, not the final subtitles, but an earlier uh, earlier uh, editing of the subtitles. Mm-hmm. And so my viewpoint of the show which was fantastic we enjoyed it we watched it in like one day straight through my viewpoint of the show is based more on that than it is by the slightly different version people watched on netflix for example i have yet to actually hear matt mercer voice a character in this game in this anime uh but uh i'm happy to talk about it and uh certainly uh, i will go with shall we start with episode one uh let you down uh this wonderful Summary written by whoever wrote the entry on Wikipedia. Thank you. I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, David Martinez is a young man attending the prestigious Arasaka Academy at his mother Gloria's behest in 2076. Gloria is a paramedic who does not work for Trauma Team. Mm, I should note. Uh, She does not work for Trauma Team. She works for one of the other smaller companies in Night City. Uh, David illegally modifies his cyberware to avoid paying for a required update to keeping to keep attending class. The cyberware in question is a Neuroport, uh, which is a kind of all-in-one piece of cyberware that contains many of the things, individual things you can get in Cyberpunk Red, but basically allows for direct connection to machines, as well as uh, it's also your phone and uh, allows you to insert chips, which are like. USB for six. I almost said floppy dots. Floppy drive. Wow! Discs. Yes. <laughs> Shovel whole floppy in your head. They're like USB sticks, uh, which you can insert into your brain. <laughs> However, the modifications end up crashing the school system because kids pirating software is bad, and Gloria agrees <laughs> to pay for the damages. On the way home, David enters into a brief argument with his mother before they are caught up by a drive-by shooting. I believe it was the Maelstrom, but it's been a while since I've seen that particular scene, leaving Gloria badly wounded. David manages to access Gloria's savings account to pay for her medical costs and discovers she has a stolen military-grade experimental one-of-a-kind, I emphasis those words, uh, Sandivestin spine implant. We call it a Sandy, by the way, because everyone pronounces it differently. We just all default to Sandy in the company. After getting assaulted by his classmate, David finds out to his dismay that Gloria's condition has worsened and she dies in the hospital. His classmate, it should be noted, has a skill chip for uh, martial arts, which he uses. Uh, he basically 
jacks it into his brain, and suddenly he knows martial. He knows kung fu, mm-hmm. and he can beat the crap out of David. Now Whoa. completely broke and enraged at uh, Katsu, Kats, I apologize, Katsuo, for insulting Gloria. David meets up with Doc, a local Ripper Doc. Uh, Ripper Doc being a back alley surgeon, who he re- regularly buys black market goods from, and requests to have and sells them to him as well as I believe. A request to have <clears throat> the Sandy installed into his own body. So as I'm getting ready to run a Cyberpunk Red character creation session this weekend, and I'm going to mm-hmm. start running it next month, I want to know why the Sandy in the show does not operate the same as the one in Cyberpunk Red. Come on! Like, that should have already been in the book Yeah, right yeah. away. Okay. So there's a couple reasons for that. For one, um, so... The Sandy in the book gives you a plus three to your initiative role, to your initiative role. It's a very important thing. It's not to your initiative. It's to your initiative role. So basically, it doesn't work if you activate it afterwards. Um, that makes you pretty fast. And in Cyberpunk, going first, it's not as important in red as it used to be in 2020, where literally you can go first and you can keep doing actions, spamming actions, until your compiled negatives uh basically made it impossible to succeed at anything. In Cyberpunk Red, uh, we've moved from a multi-action to a single action uh, uh, action economy. Ooh, big, big game designer words there. Uh, so basically, but still going first means that you get to control the initial flow of combat, and that's important. It basically means you are faster. It, David's, Sandy, is uh, one, military grade. Two, extremely experimental even for him our sandy is a little chip you put into your and and various cords you put into your nervous system his is an entire spine it should be noted so basically it's it was experimentally designed specifically by arasaka for oh spoilers for uh specific big things uh for high-end operatives it just it's one of a kind as far as i know there's only one or two of them in the world and it is the next generation of 2077 Sandy, as opposed to 2045. That being said, uh, we are working on the Cyberpunk Edge Runners Mission Kit right now, which will be a all-in-one box set you can use to play uh, the game uh, in terms of the Edge Runners 2076 setting. Uh, and we will explore uh, the 2077, 2076, 2077 version of the Sandy, which will be a little more powerful, and we'll talk about how David's would work. Because David's is, frankly, an extra actions item. If you look at what he does, he's got super speed. He's got yeah. flash style super speed. And this actually Excellent. brings up an interesting point about um, fiction based off of tabletop role-playing games anyway, is that there's always eye on for precarious balance, right? Like, uh-huh. um, if everything in the fiction is too faithful to the established rules of the setting, it feels weak. It, it Players can, in, at, at White Wolf, we used to call it, you can hear the dice rolling in the background. Yep. Um, and so it's like, well, I've played this game, so I don't need to read it. Um, so you ultimately want something novel there. But if it's too novel, then people get drawn out. It's like, this isn't the game I, I do. So, so you know, Kindred the Embraced, for example. Yep. So that's too far away from where vampire was yeah there was a problem with dragonlance with that where dragonlance fiction has to deal with the fact that spellcasters in D back then especially mm-hmm. uh, had spell slots you know you cast a spell and you can't cast it anymore for the rest of the day yep and in 
Dragonlance, there was the I, I always thought relatively weak, and it was uh, the weakest point of fiction where like they're cursed. Magicians are cursed by the gods of magic to forget a spell, and they have to rememorize it every day mm-hmm. to teach them humility or such. Mm-hmm. And you know that was uh, fictionifying a game mechanic that was the game mechanic exists to keep wizards from getting so powerful that they everybody wants to be a wizard, and it doesn't quite translate to fiction as well. Exactly. So I. I am also deeply uh, into cyberpunk, and so when I saw, I was like, oh, "Okay, that's." I, I I I I pretty clearly saw this as this is the special show MacGuffin. Yes, um, it doesn't break the world, but also, and one thing I liked about this was that it established this is a very powerful thing, and then explains why everybody wants it. Yeah. Uh, because nobody has this, so it's like, okay. Well, I as the a player get an extra layer of oh, I know I can't do that in the game. So I actually am along on board even more of like, of course, everyone wants that because I wouldn't want that. I would kill this kid to take his spine. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's – I think it actually worked in the show's favor, but I can certainly understand there's a certain caliber of fan who don't recognize that kind of meta-awareness and are just like, but I want the thing. Yeah. And, it's and it was like, also – Yeah, go ahead. Please. Sorry. It was also a nice touch that – it managed to highlight David as an individual that he was capable of using it multiple times in a row before suffering really bad repercussions if he didn't take like the necessary medicine for it compared to the original person that had it. And that was like a good contrast. It showed like a fully trained military op operative that couldn't handle it to this high school dropout uh, that was running like I think black market chips for the ripper doc could do it. Yeah. And that gets into, uh, the mechanics of humanity loss and what is humanity loss and what is cyberpsychosis uh, and you know what is the difference between being a hardened mercenary who has had how many years of doing probably relatively depraved things you know mm-hmm. uh, killing another person no matter what for what reason you know it's something that stays with you it, there's a reason why soldiers even you know who believe in the justice of their cause come home with PTSD uh, mm-hmm. violence and death uh, stain your psyche and david who uh, has experienced a not great life but he's been loved uh, he has a mom who has pushed and cared for him he ha- and he loves and cares for her as it's very very obvious by how he just goes off uh, off the deep end and just says fuck it uh, what's the rating on our show fuck it is appropriate okay uh, to, <laughs> so it's uh, not the first one on here Two no, things, you not know, today even. You know, and, and, and there are little microaggressions that add up, like your laundry literally being locked in the washer because you don't have enough money to get it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, he was in a home. He was loved. He wasn't. He was. Uh, he was doing some. He was doing some criminal stuff, but it was really minor stuff. And it was, you know, arguably more of a statement against capitalism, and than it was about violence or being horrible to other people. So and that that's something I really liked about this first episode because I'll be honest, I mean two of the three reasons why I, I tuned in were because I'm a cyberpunk fan and because we had just gone off a run talking about 90s cyberpunk and I, and we we were, we were kind of not as impressed with it as we thought we were going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like maybe this will turn me around because because the the the, the Trailers were very much the visuals reminded me of Akira, reminded me of Bubblegum Crisis, um, yeah. and I know that's stuff that Mike also was really big into. So I'm glad to see that kind of resonance of updating that slightly retro now 
Seraphonic aesthetic. I was, I was really into it, and also tying in the look of the game too. I mean, it, it, there's there's very clear connections to the video game aesthetics. Uh, so I was really surprised to find that it's actually David's an interesting character, and Gloria was the character I didn't expect to go the way it did. It's like you know, Gloria's just beaten down by the system, and she's not a proxy for. This is why I need to rebel, man, which could have been very easy to do. Instead, it was the she was just doing her best for her son. Yeah. And I immediately felt for her. I was like, I don't know if I wouldn't have made different decisions in her place. I think – and the decision to make both Gloria and David, obviously, they both would be a, a, a Latino Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, is I think was purposeful because I think that is a experience a lot of marginalized people have. You know, you're just you're doing this shit job. You're trying to you're trying to work hard, and uh, and you know you're you're just trying to to live in a society that doesn't always want you to live in it. And just so the next generation, so your your children, can have a better life. And it's arguable whether David going to Arasaka Academy would have actually led to a better life for him. Uh, Arasaka, uh, like every megacorp, I, I make this emphasis because uh, people talk about the fourth corporate war, which is the big war between Arasaka and Militech, and they often say, "Oh, Militech, you know, they're the they're the good guys," or they they side with Militech. You know, we have to pick a side because <laughs> we terrifying. have this instinctive need. And I keep telling them, there are no good corporations. Every no. corporation is the bad guy corporation in cyberpunk. Uh, every, and I also say the NCPD is the biggest gang in Night City. And that is also true. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, but, you know, she looks around and she sees the only way up, you know, if you're living in a mega building and your laundry can get stuck in your washer because you haven't paid your laundry bill. Uh, and isn't that, you know, it's not even like I can't afford to open it up to put the laundry in. They will take it, close the laundry and lock it in mm-hmm. midway through, which is just it shows how much the corporations care, or in this case, probably the uh, mega building owner. Mm-hmm. So I guess a little bit of a personal thing for me, this episode it's... was painful for me to watch. Okay. In, in what way? Sorry. Growing up in Alabama, I was mm-hmm. raised by my grandmother mm-hmm. and that was like, so she was pretty much a, a single parent raising a, a next generation kid and she was a nurse at a hospital, but she didn't have a formal education. So she wasn't a, like they have tiers of nursing and she was one of the lower tiers. So we didn't have a lot of money near any money growing up. And so a lot of the things I was seeing David go through dealing with his mom was things that I myself had experienced growing up with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And that was like a painful remembrance for me to watch the show, to get into it thinking of like that different relationship I had with her and all the things that she did and all the things watching Gloria do for David. Yeah. And, I think that's, and even that's, more so because they were point. both medical professionals. And so it's like it's all there reoccurring itself. Yeah. And that was, of course, the MacGuffin because we find out that Gloria was harvesting cyberware from people and selling it on the market as well. That's because that's mm-hmm. how she was just – so uh, she was very likely a forthright, honest person who just wanted to do right. And the only way to do right by her son in her eyes to get him to the – place where he would be comfortable and it was you know i don't think it was a question of right or wrong like i said arasaka and that's if he graduated arasaka academy he would have worked end up working for them uh, it's a basically a work for hire school uh i you know i don't think that she believed arasaka was a good company that would you know allow his son to be ethical she just wanted him to not 
go hungry. Right. It's and all to, about perseverance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she was willing to, you know, rip open people's bodies and steal things from their corpses <laughs> in order to do that because that was the most important thing. It didn't matter what she did as long as he got there. Right. And, and it was it was such a great – because I feel like that's key to a lot of cyberpunk fiction is – you have to sell that noir atmosphere of nobody's a good guy, but there are some people that are better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we're going to follow this this criminal, I mean, because David's going to become a criminal, that's a pretty clear trajectory. Um, we have to see why he's on that path. And this does a really good job. And, and again, different from Chris, but I also, I didn't say struggle with it, but certainly I resonated with it because my I also grew up poor with my mom, but the medical bill concern of can I afford to pay the medical bills with my family member? My mom had to scrape and save and go through all the stuff that I didn't realize when I was a kid. In retrospect, and look back and see it now to make sure that I got the medical treatment I did. And so she was always trying to, and, and similar because I was labeled gifted, which was a big oh, God, the big the, yeah, that's a yeah, that, that was, was a curse. curse. But yes, it was in in the eighties. It was like she wanted me to get into really good schools because she thought I would I would. Resident. Again, she wanted me to college because better life because she didn't want me to grow up being a bartender like she was. Um, so it's, I think it's part of the reasons why I, we all maybe resonate with Cyberpunk to a bit is because we can see ourselves in it. But again, it would have been so easy to have focused on the, yeah, cool, big guns, bang, bang, we're taking down the system. It, it didn't. Start with, it started with really heartfelt characters and built from there. So even episode one, it's like, I kind of want to see David take down the system, you know, and it's, and it's 22 minutes in. I'm like, yeah, no, seriously, tear it all down. And that's really, really fantastic for them to be able to pull that off in such a short space. Yeah. And and this is something Studio Trigger excels at in general. If you watch their shows, their shows are hyper action. Uh, I think you kill a kill. Uh, yeah. Even mm-hmm. even, even uh, Little Witch Academia, which is my favorite at Beyond Cyberpunk of their work. Uh, they, you know, it's it's big over the top kind of things, but the characters have very clearly established and empathetic motives for what they want to do. Uh, you watch Little Witch Academia, which I recommend, and there's this this she wants to be a witch because she saw someone her hero was one, and and she idolizes her. And as it goes on, she learns things, and there's you know darkness behind things, uh, but she keeps shining, and you root for her to shine, and you're you're rooting for David to take down the system because, or at least tear down a small chunk of it because mm-hmm. you can see how just terrible the system is uh, that, that I keep going back to that washing machine, but it's such a moment, you know, uh, that tells you exactly they're in their own apartment. They're in their space, you know, and they can't get their laundry. And again, it was, it was a great way of selling it because like it kept, it would cut from a frustrating thing back to the washing machine, cut to another frustrating thing back to the washing machine. So when it stops, you're kind of frustrated by it because it's like, we keep showing this washing machine. I want to get the clothes on because our brains are wired that way. Yeah. And then you, you don't get that payoff. It's again, it's a small thing, but you can almost see why David just freaks out that moment. It's also a good point uh, example of how you can do something in fiction that you can't do in gaming. Yeah. Um, I could say, okay, you know, cause a, you don't think about laundry in gaming, uh, Right. Most tabletop games are not life-to-life day simulators where you say, okay, now you've got to do your la- – no, you can't – you haven't done your laundry all week. Sorry. You know, give me a daily accounting of all your of all your housework. <laughs> um, but so, you could give someone a negative penalty for a social interaction 
for having not washed in a week. Oh, absolutely. Say. You, could say, you, 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 absolutely, you absolutely could. And you can use this as a story beat moment. Like, you know, it, it's the beginning of the game and you want to frustrate the character, uh, frustrate the player. Get, have the player have a sense of frustration as to what their character is going through. And you can say, these things happen to you. But it's not a game mechanic you built in where it's like, okay, you know, did you spend your 10 euro bucks this week in order to get your laundry out of the washer? Uh, it doesn't work as well if it's not this good visual and you're right the camera work the going back and forth uh that's not something that that's an advantage uh visual mediums have over role-playing games is you can play tricks like that right and that's me that's a sign of good adaptation is something that's willing to take and tweak and bend the material to use the medium it's going into to best benefit mm-hmm. um if it was too faithful it couldn't have tried something like that it so they, they, they tweak and adjust things a little bit but then they're like okay because Anime does this really well, and we really need to nail this. And so, like that was a good call. I feel. So in 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 Cyberpunk Red and many of our games, we have what's called a life path. Uh, for those of you who are listeners who have never played our games, uh, a life path is a series of charts that tell the background of your character, starting off with literally where their uh, uh, ethnic origin is, uh, whether their family originally comes from North Africa or Eastern Europe or uh, Brazil uh, or Canada uh, and some such, and then goes forward to events that occur in their life in terms of, you know, I grew up here, my family was like this, this horrible thing happened to me when I was a teenager, that sort of thing. This episode is a life path in a role-playing game. This this is, I could probably map this fairly well to our life path system up until the point where you get the military grade implant because generally you don't start people off with one character having a power level so much higher than all the other characters. No, but you can get a a piece of good gear in a life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You absolutely could. And you know, you buy gear in our system uh, in cyberware, but you could say uh, the, the meta of how I got this was I found it. I just spend my hypothetical money uh, to get it in this case. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, David, I assume like at some point, paid doc for that installation even though he said you know when you die i want it i get you i bet you doc didn't get it in the end um (laughs) also spoilers uh but uh but yes this episode is a good example of a life path you know there's literally a point like on your life path you roll what happened to your family and one of them is they died horribly uh and this is an example you know he's a uh David is a, a young man whose family comes from uh, uh, south of the U.S. border originally. Uh, I don't know how long they've been in Night City. Uh, I assume not too long, because as I recall, um, uh, or the, actually a, a decent like David's probably third or fourth generation, if not you know more. Mm-hmm. But uh, his you know his family was lower upper lower class. If that even matters, they ha- they did not have. They lived in a mega building. That's an origin point you can roll up in a life path. Uh, he went to a cool Arasaka school. Uh, that is not specifically that we talk about education, but you can basically it's possible to get a your family was this and you grew up this way and the two don't quite mesh with each other. Mm-hmm. And this is an example of how those two actually can mesh with each other with a good story. And then you know his mom dies and that is a family tragedy there and goes on from there so david and david by the way uh we class him as a solo which is a fighter makes sense yeah 
Is there anything else about the first episode? Um, I'm good. I'm good with the first episode of being done. All right. Then let's move on to the second episode. Sure. Uh, like a boy. Doc agrees to install the Sandy, which grants David super speed and reflexes. With his new ability, David returns to school and beats up Katsuo. He does so in full view of security cameras, which results in his expulsion from the academy. Katsuo's father, Tanaka, an Arasaka executive, noticed that David is able to utilize the Sandy with no apparent side effects, making him a valuable test subject for the product. Meanwhile, as David aimlessly wanders the city, he encounters a young netrunner, Lucy, who agrees to take him on as a partner. After a night of slot pocketing mm. marked on the subway, David collapses due to overuse of the Sandy. Lucy takes an amusing ride in an ambulance where the ambulance trauma team attempts to sell David out for the Sandy. But mm. Lucy saves him and they take him to the dock. And Lucy invites David back to her apartment after the dock and him having one night's one day's worth of immunosuppressants. And he takes and he and she takes him on a brain dance, I believe, to her dream location of the moon. And it all appears to be a ploy for a gang of edge runners to come and take the Sandy from David. Yes. So uh, first of all, that is a, a virtual so there's two kinds of brain dances in the cyberpunk world there is the brain dance you experience in a video game where you quite literally relive somebody's life to uh, an event in someone's life and in that you feel everything you feel what they do down to the emotions what she did was called an interactive brain dance which is kind of a combination of vr technology and brain dance technology it's not as intense you don't necessarily feel what's being recorded in the same way you don't feel the emotional uh, reactions for example uh, but you can actually interact it's used for video games uh, like elf lines online the favorite mmo of night city uh, so it's a combination of the, the two we often get that question is how how does elf lines work if brain dances are like they are in the video game and lucy and david clearly interact in that moon scenario uh, and they share it too and brain dances aren't usually shared uh, so that's that's what it is. Just a little bit of trivia. Uh, this was a good episode. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it, get, it you know it, it very it's very classic build out from the from the origin. You know you get the origin and then things happen. Uh, and even this could be like a life path. For example, you can make a friend, and obviously he made a friend who was a criminal. Uh, so you could see that as this too. Uh, the biggest thing here is the uh, drugs, the immunosuppressants which the doc gives uh, David. And you see in, uh, and you think about it for a second, uh, you're getting something installed in your body. Uh, uh, immune system rejection is a classic problem with uh, transplants. And I believe, uh, though I'm not an expert on this, they do uh, weaken your immune system specifically to avoid this problem when they are doing an organ transplant, for example. That sounds uh, right, yeah. Uh, obviously, it's not always the case. For example, I don't think Eddie—I uh, I believe Eddie—it's all right to mention your implant. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. So that—that that, wasn't—that's that, kind of a weird case because literally they just uh, drilled a hole in my head and plopped it in and it was called it a day. I mean, it was like five-minute yeah. long procedure. So, I mean, but that wasn't the same kind of implant. It was—I was, um, did have uh, some skin rejection for a while, um, and so I had to keep that area clean. And they—they they, they had to do this medication for like about a month or two. 
Um, but that was extremely minor, all, and, all things considered. Yeah. And um, my guess is people who, for example, have uh, prosthetic limbs have to make sure that, that – I imagine that causes wear on the uh, – this flesh, the skin that it's atta- yeah. that it's attached to, so but and we don't cover that in the game because you know what, saying hey you know you've got a rash you better take care of it here's ten eddies for the for the lotion you're gonna need or the medicine you're gonna need <laughs> is kind of boring and so we don't mention we just mention you get it implanted you're done we don't mention the steps of the implantation we don't mention the uh, immuno boosters or immuno blockers that for example V gets in the video game, mm-hmm. uh, you know V V gets the new uh, Kuroshi eyes and the subder and the uh, subdermal implant in her his or her hand their hand and then uh, their ripper doc gives them a inhaler and says you know take this x number of times uh, we don't really get into that and so this is getting into that now this is the, the this particular drug that David is given is something we've talked about quite a bit in the office and how it works and what it would do in game things. So it is a it is a bigger drug than anything that you would normally get because what David has is a bigger piece of cyberware. It is what, definitely what we would call Borgware, I believe, okay. which is you know uh, like getting multi multiple eyes. It, it just takes the human body so far beyond the baseline that the body can't handle it. You know, the body's brain is literally not wired for it in any any way, shape, or form. It can't quite adapt to it. And so it has a bigger uh, humanity loss and a bigger uh, uh, chance of rejection. And so these immunosuppressants, which are, I'm thinking, much more than immunosuppressants, there are also many other things uh, built in. And immunosuppressants is used as shorthand because they don't want to go, they didn't want to give it a name. They didn't want to be super fancy. They didn't want to over-explain it. Um, Which is smart, I think. Yeah. Uh, is something, show. yeah. Sorry. So you're saying, go ahead. Uh, it's just it's it's just something that you don't see anywhere else yet in cyberpunk uh, because it's such a remarkable piece of cyberware. It's more similar to um, back in 2020. We haven't introduced these in red yet. Back in 2020, we had what are called full body conversions, which are basically your brain and a little bit of flesh matter, biomatter, are implanted into what is essentially a robotic body. And in many of them, uh, there are literally you're being pumped full of drugs all the time in order to keep you calm and you know going forward because it's so your brain is saying, oh, I can't feel things the right way. I'm not wired for this. Uh, it's you know and that this is this is one of the big differences between cyberpunk and transhumanism. Uh, transhuman asks uh, a lot of times, how can technology evolve the human body? And Cyberpunk ads asks, should technology in the hands, especially in the hands of mega corporations who are more interested in profit than they are in health, evolve the human body? Uh, and you see this uh, today with people who have uh, early heart transplants or, uh, sorry, pacemakers having, you know, or having their, uh, that they can't no longer, the company went out of business or moved on, is no longer supporting the device they have, so they can't get the proper uh, software updates they need. Same with uh, uh, there's some uh, eye implants uh, that were on 2005. They just the companies went out of business and and that there are no firmware updates and so people's eyes are just stopping. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's tough and you know Cyberpunk I think does not ask questions should we ad- should we enhance ourselves with technology. It's asking the questions of what happens. You know I don't uh, I don't think for example there's much the idea of file sharing is not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, 
but the laws, you know, the society and who controls that file sharing, you know, that hasn't even cryptocurrency is not a bad idea specifically, but if the wrong people control it and there's no oversight to protect the average person against abuse of it, what happens? And for the use of the show, the immunosuppressants was a nice touch because it shows you a glimpse into all three of those characters and who they are. It gives you an idea of who the Ripper Doc is, who is at least a friend of David's, who made an arrangement that when David wants it ripped out, he gets it for free and it's a piece of equipment he wants. Right. So you already have the, the implication that he did this intentionally not giving him those. Secondly, you get another insight into David, who, while he wants to bring down parts of the system, is still young and naive to and not horny. have asked any of the questions. That's, let's be honest, what, and horny. What's getting the uh, Sandy installed? And then a glimpse of Lucy, who you've just met, mm-hmm. who cares enough about this person to take him to a Ripper dock and save him. Because yes. we find out even later in this episode... It would have been easier for her to let him die and then take a body around than it is to go get him treatment and everything else. So like highlights all three of their characters in that one thing. Yeah. Lucy's interesting because I don't think because she could have just stolen his body, let him die and hand him over to the gang. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that it, as we've already seen that the Sandy would still have worked because it was originally taken off a dead guy. Uh, he, she didn't need David alive to incubate it or keep it going the, the way you needed a, you know, a V alive to move the chip, for example, or in, in 2077 specifically. Uh, but, you know, she had a initial impulse. Like, eh, she had fun, I think, with him on the subway. He was interesting. He was intriguing. And who knows? Maybe she saw some of herself in it. Maybe she was horny. I don't know. Uh, she had some motivation. But then... Uh, her pragmatism because cyberpunk is a world that beats down on you and teaches you if you don't look out for yourself first and foremost uh you're gonna that's gonna be it you're gonna die you're gonna have a horrible life things are gonna go bad things are gonna go wrong uh she changes her mind and calls in the edge runners maybe she does it because she's hoping they'll make friends but i suspect that she really wasn't originally intending to do what she did it and she's lonely i think that's obvious a she hates the world the moon mm. thing, the, the moon simulation, her dream, shows that off right away. Yeah. And it's another example of this is a terrible place to live. I want to get out of here. And you see this actually in Blade Runner too. Uh, mm-hmm. And Blade Runner, Blade Runner is a horrible, di- dirty place. Uh, the city is a nasty, dirty place full of darkness and, and roughness and, and just loss and misery. But you know there are off-world colonies where people are having fun and living it up. Mm-hmm. Or at least you think you are. The advertisements, and it's seeded through the lore in the movies. Uh, and this is here. You know, who knows if the moon is a better place, honestly? But she thinks it is. At least it's not here. Right. Uh, is there anything else y'all want to talk about for the second episode? I'll take that as a no. Okay. Okay, I'm good. Episode three, Actually, criminal. Oh, good. I will point out one other thing, which touches on this and in the game. I love the fact that the iconic jacket that everyone is associating with David that they have seen talk about online that they play in the game they made a model of is David's mother's jacket. That is very that's very nice. And um that I I don't even want to say popped collar because it's not really a pop collar. It's this 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 almost br- neck brace of a collar 
that you see there. V has it in 2077. David has it. David and his mom have it in this to some degree. Uh, that goes back to the cover uh, of uh, the original Cyberpunk uh, and the character mm-hmm. who has no name. We just call him Cyberpunk Guy. Uh, he has that kind of weird neck brace collar. Uh, the working theory is that there, it, it's like uh, those cooling devices you can see people get at cons or on airplanes. They're like little fans you put on their neck, and it has cooling systems in the jacket to you know help vent heat. Well, it makes sense because Night City is what roughly California. It is. It is. It is uh, in where modern day Morro Bay is. Okay. And uh, the world uh, climate change actually started early in the cyberpunk world, uh, mm-hmm. where we you know the understanding at the time it was written was the ozone layer is going to die, but the end results are basically the same. The average temperature daily temperature has risen uh, the midwest is a dust bowl and uh, we reflect this we have a supplement for the game you can get for free on our website called night city weather and the average temperatures started off i started when i wrote it i started off with night the areas Morro bay's areas seasonal temperatures throughout the year and i raised them a degree or two uh, over them and there's also a chance so yeah night city nice. is not a place that gets cold it is a place that gets very hot very quickly, and I'm guessing most places don't even have air conditioning because air conditioning is expensive. Right. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay. All right. Episode three, uh, Smooth Criminal, which, digression, I'm pretty sure each episode title is a song title as well. Yes. Every uh, episode title is a song title. I thought so. I saw. I heard Smooth Criminal. I was like, wait a minute. And I went back and looked at the other ones. <laughs> and I'm like, I think I recognize yeah. most of those songs. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, Dave is confronted by the gang led by a man named Maine, who reveals that Gloria had sold to Sandy to him the day before her death and that he is one of her acquaintances. Dave reveals his glorious son and offers to work for Maine, demonstrating his compatibility with Sandy. Intrigued, Maine honors his friendship with Gloria by giving David a chance to prove himself. David then returns home, having lost his trust in Lucy. Next day, David meets up with the gang and Maine introduces him to the other members, Kiwi, Dorio, and Pillar. David then participates in a heist to steal navigation data from Maxim, who's a driver for Arasaka. The plan goes awry due to unexpected complications, and David and Lucy are forced to steal Maxim's limo to gain the data instead. Maine rescues them from a tiger claw biker sent by Maxim to kill them and officially inducts Gabe into the gang, have been impressed by his performance on the job. David also meets Maine's fixer, Faraday, who brought them the job of stealing Maxim's navigation data to obtain information on Tanaka's movements. David then receives a message from the Academy, offering to let him return, but he bluntly turns them down. And aside from the framing of him being jumped into the gang and then him rejecting the Academy thing, everything in the middle is like such a classic cyberpunk gaming session to me. Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. So, um, yeah. So, A, this is. And B, this is good corporate intrigue because as we spoilers find out later faraday works for arasaka and so this was intercorporate faraday mm. is screwing with a another uh you know, faraday you know may not work directly for arasaka but he's in their wheelhouse so this is essentially one part of arasaka screwing over another which is a very cyberpunk thing too because mm-hmm. the only way to advance in a corporation is to make the easiest way to advance in a corporation in cyberpunk is to uh get rid of the people above you or to your sides to make sure they can't advance over you exactly uh there's yeah it's a very classic stuff in here uh you got you know it'd it, it, be for beat i could put this on a beat chart easily mm-hmm. and run this as a session uh fairly uh, simply you got your classic characters 
your net runners, your solos, your techs. Uh, main All right. is a trope. You, you've said you could do this on a breakdown for a session right now. Can you break down the gang by what role they would play in Cyberpunk Red? Uh, I, okay, so A, I can give my opinion on the matter. Uh, I want to point, I want to, with the caveat that they may be listed slightly differently or differently in the final product for the edge runners kit, if they're in there. Um, but it's, and it's been a while. Um, let's see. Kiwi is a net runner. Uh, no, Kiwi is a solo. As I recall. Yes. Um, killer is a tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dorio is a little tougher because we don't know a lot there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, as I recall, uh, Dorio, uh, is, uh, are you checking a book? There's no I, book I, or Googling I, on this podcast. To, there is, there is Googling. I'm we'll trying see. to remember who each character is because <laughs> I'm, I'm name blind. Uh, a sure, lot of times, sure, sure. a lot of characters I know as, uh, you know, that person, uh, Dorio, th this is a solo heavy group. Dorio was also a solo. Okay. And Ki sorry, Kiwi is a net runner, as I recall, and Dor Dor uh, Dorio is a solo, and the main is a solo. Lu and they Lucy might is also a net runner, well. right? Uh, yes, and Lucy's, Lucy's a net runner. Run yeah, runner. Lucy's absolutely a net runner. Um, and Main's Main's definitely a solo. Yes. And and there, there's enough room in the roles for differences. Like uh, uh, Main is definitely a solo. Main is Main is a bruiser solo. Uh, pillar, uh, uh, pillar is a tech, pretty st straightforward. Uh, Dorio is probably a uh, solo, uh, more little, little less uh, cyber oriented. Still fair amount, uh, obviously, uh, but uh, probably based more on on dexterity reflexes. Especially, you, you get that that very traditional trope of male female dichotomy: the big guy and the very agile woman. Yep. Uh, that you get in Street Fighter, for example. Um, and Kiwi and Lucy are, are both net runners, uh, but uh, Lucy, I think, uh, shows that she is much more an infiltrator in the end. And Kiwi is uh, Ki Kiwi does a lot. We see her do more deep diving, which is uh, there's. Um, so that, that's the big difference. You probably see more party diversity uh, in a role-playing game and a tabletop role-playing game, but in an anime, a 30 set is 30 minute to 60 minutes uh, slot of action. You're going to see, you can ha get together with less because you don't need to show the more, the, the more you have to show each character's unique skills, the more time you need. Right. So, and, and you, you really comes down to people who fights people who use computer stuff and the guy who does technological stuff. It, yeah. it really needs to be that simple. Yeah, uh, a rocker boy or a media or even a fixer in this specific case would not uh, suit the plot because we didn't have a lot of social interaction, which is their bailiwick. For example, you know, if we had the person who who was the uh, got old reference face from the A team, you know, <laughs> who 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 smooth talked them into a building. If, if this was a heist movie, we would have had one of those. For right. example. If mm -hmm. this was more of an Ocean's Eleven as opposed to a fairly violence-oriented group. Um, oh, and Faraday is obviously a fixer. It's very specifically said that he's right. a fixer. He is, he is an old-school fixer, which is he's the guy that hires you, as opposed to a team fixer who is the guy who often uh, is 
radar from MASH. It gets the uh, stuff for the team needs and uh, also may act as a social character. As a side note, I do love your very specific TV references that you're putting in in a, uh, a, a mic a, uh, a mic bump for MASH in Radar. Yeah. Yes, well, yes. You know, Radar is the perfect example of a fixer um, because that's, you know, he's a quartermaster. And that's in a PC party, that is a great job for a fixer to have is be a quartermaster, is be the person who gets stuff for the team. That's one and of their biggest advantages of the role. Before we get back onto point, then if you were in a party mm-hmm. for a cyberpunk red game, what is your preferred role? Eddie, get ready because you know I'm going to ask you the same question too. Okay. What role? What is your role that you'd like to play? Oh God, no! It's it's the other way around. I come up with the concept, then I make the role for it. Um, I tend to like the social roles more than the or the 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 smart roles over the combat roles. Uh, that tend to be like I'm playing D and D. I tend to go for clerics, for example. I think they're more interesting, and there's a lot of diversity in them. Uh, and so, uh, in this, I would probably go for. Uh, I think an exec would be interesting, uh, for example, yeah. which is the corporate class. But I would twist it and make them for like an exec for some struggling uh, medical group that's trying to give free healthcare away to people who need it. Love it. Um, and I'm I not at all that, mining for scenarios for my own game in January. Yes. Don't don't, don't take um, that at all. Uh, well, I'm going to say, uh, look at look at um, uh, Rise of the Ashes, Phoenix Redwinds Clinic, and the core rulebook because that is a great central plot depository where you're not where if you want a we're working for the relative good guys kind of scenario. All right, Eddie, you, you've had extra time. No, yeah, totally. Um, and while my usual answer is kind of along Jay's line, like I I, I have had fun with all the roles. If I if I take you know just pick one, it's media. It's almost always media. Uh, partially because I feel like the media does not get enough love as a as a role in general in Cyberpunk, but more specifically because I absolutely cut my teeth on the Max Hedrum TV show. Oh yeah, no, that's <laughs> yes. honestly that's my starting point for Cyberpunk too. That's the first place I yes. encounter Cyberpunk. Um, Cyberpunk, and the, it, I wish it were streaming someplace I can get it because it is a fantastic show to this day. Uh, if you can, if you can watch the Max Hedrum TV show, we recommend watching it. You will see how a media can be right in the back of the action. Um, and honestly, I know people always go to Spider Jerusalem, and that's great. Um, you know, there's a lot of really cool stuff there. But I think uh, Edison Carter is the archetypical, uh, from Max Hedrum show, is the archetypical media. And Max yeah, Hedrum yeah. himself is a great, cool example of a weird, wacky AI um, yes. you can have he, in your game. Honestly, Mac, Max himself, I mean, he's an AI, obviously, right? But I mean, he's kind of a rocker boy in that in the traditional cyberpunk mold in that he's very charismatic. He has a, mm-hmm. a popular following, and he uses that to try to make change, although that change is sometimes arbitrary to his weird AI whims. Yes. Yeah. And that is true. And if you look, going back to that show for a second, if you look back on the show, you've got a media, you've got an exec, mm-hmm. you've got a, you know, you've got a fixer, you've got a, a tech. Fixer. That's yep. a great role. It's, it a, it's great. It's oh. a great show with a great party level cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. And so, where it's where I got my crush for Amanda Pace. Call back to the flash that we did. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love, I love it. You're, you're now doing callbacks. Yes, I feel like <laughs> I've accomplished something over the past year that we've been doing this. It, it was hard. <laughs> Because Eddie is a professional that doesn't do all these weird little side things that I do. And I went out of my way to corrupt Eddie. And I feel like I've done it. So the, the other interesting thing about um, Max Hedrum, the 
show is that we talked earlier about the the three branches, the British, the Japanese, and the American branches of cyberpunk, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. is that Max Hedrum is a British take on the American branch of cyberpunk. Because yes. mm-hmm. it starts off as an English show that gets ported into America, and it was not so much... I mean, there's there definitely some, some Thatcherism, some... Uh, the 2020 uh, 2080s some some uh vs for style in there but it's much more american in the uh way it views it uh media corporations for example um though it could be argued that at the time when they were starting to deprivatize media and it wasn't just the bbc all the time that was also a response to that concept Right. And it goes back to an earlier point is like, um, that's a perfect example of they started off with some things. If you watch the pilot movie, it's a little more into that Thatcherite vein. Mm-hmm. And then, yep. yeah, when it becomes a CBS show, that's when uh, Network 23 becomes more of the big pro slash antagonist. Um, and you're right. It's, it's kind of a half step between that American corporations are going to ruin the world, cyberpunk. But yeah, the, the BBC nerves of what happens when Sky takes over the world or whatever, yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I then, gotta, I'm going to say there is a Network 24 in oh, it's cyberpunk. 24? No, no, no. You're right, 23. Okay. In <laughs> cyberpunk, in our cyberpunk, capital C cyberpunk, uh, there is, the, one of the big media corps is – the biggest media corp is Network 24. 24. Okay, nice, nice. <laughs> then where would you slot – VR, if in the middle of this, with your with the Max Headroom, we've got our Thatcherism, and we've got other shows. Where does VR land on the radar for you two? VR if technology? VR. No, the television show VR about am I the only person saw the show? I think in the nineties, uh, like a group. Is that, of, is that the Power Rangers in cyberspace show? Not no, you're quite. Thinking- I, I think I know what you're talking about. It was, it was, there were a series, as, as I recall, uh, X Files was a powerhouse back then, and they kept trying to pair it with a show, and no show ever lasted more than one season. Oh, yes. that show, right? So there was a bunch of blip shows, of which um, I think what the, um, there was a I show about a guy called... who had ho- weird luck, uh, was my favorite. Yes, yes, I think I it was called that. the VR.5. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm going to admit I didn't watch it, so I can't say. It and she, it was basically humans entering into like the VR reality. And if I remember right, they were fighting like regimes and everything else equivalent. Right. It was it was basically Tron ninety. Now yeah. you say that. I, I, I one more bit of trivia is if you ever watched the original Super Mario Brothers movie, uh, it was it was created by the same people who created Max Hedrum. And so if you're ever watching this and going, why does Mario Brothers a cyberpunk movie? That's why. That explains so much. I have to watch it again now. <laughs> yeah, if you watch it out of, uh, through that lens, it becomes a much different movie. Uh, but anyway, um, sorry. Go ahead. Um, no, it's fine. It's fine. We, we digressed. It's it's required. We've checked that box. Okay, um, cool. Chris, so, you have not said what role you would prefer. Yes, yes, Chris, tell us. I, so I love to, how regardless of what I do, and then try to get out of that you're doing them himself. So I'm not going to let that stand. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. All right. You know me too well now. I'm going to find a new approach from now on <laughs> to do this, to keep it, to shake you up. Um, for me, it is hands down either a nomad or the techie. I like these the simple concept of the nomad, of the freedom that it presents wait, wait, in traveling like from the, place to place. You, Chris Spivey, like like the cowboy role? No. I know. No. <laughs> it's shocking. But then there's the other part of me that really likes the aspect of like the techie that's doing all the things that create the technology to like bridge some of those gaps. But in my heart of hearts, it's going to be a nomad. That's fair. That's fair. Well, you could be a nomad. You could be a tech who is a member of a nomad family. 
They have techs. Oh. Someone's someone's repairing their cars. In fact, techs are nomad techs cross because you can multi-class in red are the best um, uh, mechanics in the game because they get bonuses to repair cars based on both rolls. Oh, love it. nice. A L- little bit of little so, bit of min-maxing there. <laughs> Before we get back on point, one last side tangent. For our twos of listeners, who would like us to do an audio actual play of Cyberpunk Red? I've discussed this with neither Jay nor Eddie, who could at some later point say no, and I would cry on the inside. But I don't think they will, because they don't want to hear that me mentally crying. Um, if you would like to have that someday, uh, let us know. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I want to play Cyberpunk Red. On the other hand, I kind of want to hear you cry. So it's tough for me. <laughs> what, what if we make him cry? What, what if we make him cry during the game? Oh, there we go. That, we'll, we'll give him a puppy, right? <laughs> and is we'll it a cyber about, puppy? That's it, how cute the cyber puppy is. The entire game, the, the cyber puppy is doing really cute things, and then in the end, the cyber puppy turns on him and uh, injects him with drugs because it turns out the cyber puppy was owned by the corporations all along. No, not Fluffy. <laughs> Fluffy is a corpo. By the way. <laughs> That is a for GMs out there. That is one of the best ways to really mess with your players. In a in a safe talk about things in session zero, though, don't give it away. Sort of way. Uh, digression, but I remember one of my, my abiding <laughs> memories of running Starpoint twenty twenty. Um, it was a complete accident thing, but uh, uh, I was just they were walking down an alley. I just, I was just trying to be atmospheric. I described a, a cat showing up, and then one of the um, solos blows his cool role. So I'm trying. I was trying to establish them. Hey, cool is an important stat to have. Um, blows his cool role and he turns around and just gun down the cap. Okay, whatever. Two sessions later, I'm not. I'm. I'm, I'm scraping for inspiration. I mention a, a cat walking across the alleyway again. This is before the Matrix occurred. Uh-huh. Um. So and they're like, "Is that the same cat?" And I'm just like, "Sure, why not?" <laughs> so for like six sessions, they were convinced that someone was cloning cats specifically to surveil them all the way around Night City. And I was like, I couldn't make that stuff up. It's like the, the, the player it. conspiracy theory is always the best default. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely, was happening. Of course, you're yeah. so clever to figure that out. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> absolutely uh, that. That is one of the key skills of being a good game master is letting is going. Yeah, is being willing to say, yeah, you know what, their idea is so much better than mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but anyway, all right, um, so back far. on target. So lucky you. Right, we're on Lucky You. Yes. Uh, well, was there four. any final thoughts about episode three? I, I don't think so. I th- I think that we left that long ago. I'm not even sure what episode three was anymore. <laughs> <laughs> episode three of Max Headroom, right? So we're talking about right. Yeah. So, Lucky You. Uh, as a new recruit, David receives t- to the Edge Runner gang. David receives training and instruction from the other gang members, including running errands for Pillar and his sister Rebecca. This is where Rebecca comes in. Everybody knows that she was the breakout star of the show. Mm-hmm. Learning how to drive from Maine. This is an important thing. David does not know how to drive. I actually had someone the other day say, "Oh God, I'm surprised." David does. You know, you know. In, in Cyberpunk Red, in order to be able to drive without, um, without you know, worry, you have to have a base, a stat plus skill mm-hmm. above a certain level. Anything below that, technically, you have to make a roll every time you drive, mm-hmm. even if you're just driving normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is because David. Where's David going to learn how to drive? You know, it, it's not. There, there's no real school system for him to learn how to drive. He's not. Yep. He's in a city, so he can walk everywhere. There's public transportation. Uh, we saw the subway. 
And uh, like something like 40% of New Yorkers, he does not drive a car regularly or, mm-hmm. or have access to a car. Yep. So, uh, say, uh, sorry. Uh, learning how to drive from Maine and jogging at night with Lucy. We don't recommend jogging at night in Night City. He also participates in several jobs with the crew, such as taking out a game of scavengers, rescuing Rebecca from the Maelstrom gang, and helping Lucy with pickpocketing. He learns that Lucy is a talented netrunner, but not much else about her past. David confides with Maine that he has feelings with Lucy, but he's certain she doesn't feel the same and has trouble figuring out whether he should trust her. Because, you know, their first meeting, they had a shared beautiful experience of the moon, and then she tried to sell him out. Eventually, David begins to feel at home with the gang. However, on the way home from a bar, Pillar begins harassing a homeless man urinating on the street. The homeless man is revealed to have cyberpsychosis and suddenly kills Pillar with a concealed gun. With a cyberpsycho target, when the cyberpsycho targets Lucy, David uses his Sandy to approach the cyberpsycho and shoot him, while Maine finishes him off. David takes Lucy home, while the rest of the gang stays behind to deal with the mess where Lucy reveals her dream to go to the moon is genuine. David promises Lucy he will take her to the moon and they kiss. Okay. So I think other than the, the fast forwarding of David's relationship with Lucy, which of course is an incredibly important plot point mm-hmm. um, to the whole thing and the introduction of Rebecca, who is a favorite character in the show um, and the introduction of a cyber psycho. These are all very important. There's a lot of little things that happen in this show, mm-hmm. this episode, that are important. We get the cyberpsychosis. We get to see how terrifying someone who is in the grips of it can be, and someone who, and how powerful someone who is fully uh, cybered up can be. Uh, also, that Pillar died of his own stupidity. <laughs> yeah. Um, the lesson is don't don't mess with home unhoused people. People don't you know don't be a jerk. <laughs> um, what we see is essentially a little hint of David and Maine's future there. And more importantly, I think in this is that we have that moment where David talks to Maine about Lucy. And this is a bit of a trope. Uh, I am firmly of the belief that a single, uh, a child of a single parent does not necessarily need, you know, if it's a boy does not need a male role model. If it's a girl, a woman, a girl does not need a female role model. Uh, I think that you can, but there is something to be said for the trope of uh, a mother raising a single child, uh, son, uh, ra- single parenting a son, and that son having no male role model on how to be a man. Mm-hmm. And uh, David locking on to Maine for that role model, and then Maine locking on to David because Maine, as we will find out later, is on the border of cyberpsychosis, as it is. And well, he has his gang, and he especially has you know his lieutenant slash girlfriend. Um, he is in need of human connection because, okay, so let me, let me explain it this way. Uh, we have poser gangs in Night City. Uh, poser gang is a gang which takes a theme usually from popular media. Uh, they're often used as jokes. Uh, the Kennedys, for example, they all take on the facial appearance and mannerisms of the various members of the Kennedy family mm-hmm. or the Gilligans, which are from Gilligan Island. There's a lot of Gilligan Island jokes in 2020. <laughs> um, or not, if you know where to look. Um, but uh, and people, people think, oh, why would anyone join those? They, and, they, and they think of them on the surface level as a joke. Uh, I think of it as uh, theater of the absurd, where we're pointing at using something really absurd to point out a serious issue, which is in 2020, 2045, 2077 in the cyberpunk universe, connecting with other people is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
family units tend to be severely broken up if they exist at all. There's a lot of people living off the street. Um, uh, it is a dystopian future in which you know you don't necessarily have long-term relationships. You have short hookups, which is also not bad. There's no shaming you there. But uh, if that's all you do and you don't have any human contact, uh, you're avoiding people, people, other pe getting involved in other people's lives is dangerous because you get their shit. Um, and as a result, you are starved for connection. You're starved for identity. You don't know who you are. You don't know where you belong. And suddenly there's this gang and this gang says, hey, you come with us and you do this thing. Here's your role. Here's who you are. And if you do that, you'll have a place to belong. You'll always be cared for. You'll be, you'll, you'll be part of something. The idea that you need to be part of something, I think, is, is very instinctual to humans, whether it is, you know, it's why we identify with sports teams. It's why we identify with nations. It's why we identify with um, our companies. It's why we identify with our families. We want to belong to something. And if you have nothing to belong to because your nation is broken down and mega corporations are these cold and personal things that even if you work for them, uh, you don't feel like you belong to them. Uh, you don't have a family specifically that you can really belong to. You don't have a lot of friends. Then yeah, you're gonna go. You're gonna be willing to change your face to look like Gilligan or Mr. Howell because hey, that's a way to belong. That's a way to have human contact. Because touch starvation is a thing. Emotional contact starvation is a thing. You want to be part of a group that will for herd animals in mm -hmm. a way. And so Maine is reaching out, and I think Maine at a subconscious level is realizing how close to the edge he is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if this had been three years ago, he may not have taken on David the way he did now uh, because he may not have, the need would not have been there necessarily, but now Maine needs a human connection and this fairly innocent, fairly um, naive, fairly uh, open kid comes and says, Hey, Will you be my daddy? He doesn't say it directly. But right, right. His subtext is there, and Maine's like, "Yeah, I see someone, and I know who's willing to give me an emotional connection that doesn't have any strings attached to it." Yeah, that's and, rare. And, and and to your point, there's a very thin line between having characters that don't have any depth and characters who are emotionally stunted and therefore uh, performative. And these characters all feel like the latter. Um, we see that there is some depth there, but they never approach it. Cause you're right. It's like, you know, when you don't have regular human relationships, you don't really grow complicated as a person. So you start to, this is the style over substance thing. I have to present a certain aesthetic. I have to present a certain mode. People have to engage with that surface level because that's all they will ever get to. And so surface level needs to be broad and brash and arrogant and flamboyant. So yeah, of course you're gonna have themed gangs. You're gonna have you know to, to pull a Batman Beyond reference. You're gonna have the Jokers. You know whatever, yeah. um, because that's all people get and that's all people care about in the city. Um, so you have a lot of people who are emotionally stunted because they don't have long term relationships. And then you have this edge runner group, who this is the only relationships they have, and so it takes on this much higher importance. Uh, and it, it's interesting, like uh, Pillar is, is actually an interesting example because he has a surprising arc in two episodes, neither of which he is the primary character. 
um, but Pillar is obsessed with technology and an asshole, then we see pretty quickly that he he cares for his sister, but it's still an asshole. Yeah. Um, and then he dies, and how his sister reacts to him dying shows the depth of the relationship they had that neither of them acknowledged when he was alive. Yeah. So this is interesting. Um, someone asked me the other day, uh, or asked in general, you know, how do I make cyber psychos scary in my game? And I said, go back and watch the Avengers. Uh, specifically, spoilers for the Avengers if you haven't seen it. Uh, specifically, the scene where uh, uh, the aircraft carrier, uh, the, the uh, helicarrier is attacked, mm-hmm. and Bruce and Natasha fall, and Bruce turns into the Hulk. The Hulk's not scary by mm-hmm. himself. He's a big green monster. That's fine. We see dinosaurs all the time in movies, right? right. The Hulk's not scary. What sells the Hulk being scary is Natasha's reaction because she is so obviously terrified of the Hulk. We know the Hulk is scary. And this is the same kind of way. We don't get to see much of Lucy and Pillar's relationship. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not Lucy, Rebecca and Pillar's relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, we really don't. In fact, when we see it, Pillar is basically just being a frat boy jerk to her. Right. You know? uh, but her reaction tells us that that relationship was much deeper uh, than... Uh, than we will ever know. And it humanizes, it posthumously humanizes Pillar in a way that didn't before then. Before then, he was just a guy, guy with really cool cyber arms who was, you know, the funny jerk. Right. And one of the things that I thought was great about the pacing of this show, because um, again, we're first like 22, 25 minute episodes, which is typical for anime. Um, but the whole thing feels like it's consistent, continually getting faster and faster and faster. Like I said, we go through an entire relationship with Lucy in just this one episode. Uh-huh. And it's paced in such a way that we don't lose anything. We, I believe that they have a relationship at the end of this episode. I don't feel like I've been removed from anything. But also it sells the idea that life is very fast in Night City. Yeah. Um, and the fact that David last episode was just going his first job and now in this episode he's a relatively seasoned edge runner, the only thing that gets him over the hump that this, the one thing he's struggling with is actually killing someone, which he gets over in this. And so each, each episode has a kind of, this is the next step in David's journey as an edge runner. But the fact is, is that also the time of each episode gets more and more collapsed. Like the first episode is pretty languid. We're looking at just a whole day of David's life. And the next episode is kind of a few days. He struggles to come to terms with his implant. And then the next episode is about a week of all the life stuff. And now we're looking at several weeks, maybe even a month. Um, so the, the time gets faster and faster and faster, which very much feels like what it likes to live in Night City, where like it's, it's there and it's gone, it's there and it's gone again, that everything needs to be surface level because there's no time for anything meaningful. Yeah. And, and, and like you say, uh, we see that relationship progress very quickly. At this point, David's known Lucy for a couple of months at the most. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot of time, but with the death of his mother and, and him leaving. So you, we realize that in, in, in short order, David's mother dies, and she is literally the only piece of support he has, right? right. Um, you know, emotional support. He leaves his school. Um, so there's what tenuous, tenuous sense of belonging he had there is gone. Yeah, obviously, he never considered himself. They, they, they failed at whatever brainwashing they were doing to make him a, you know, an Arasaka company man. Right. Uh, and so he's desperate for connection. And Lucy's obviously desperate for connection too because of things you learn about her later on. Uh, and so these two people who 
we're desperate, you know? I think we've all at one point or another had that relationship for maybe it's a friendship, maybe it's a, a, a romantic relationship where we've just, you know, boom. And it, often they don't work out because uh, you it's not necessarily that it's the right person. It was just the right person at the right time. And mm-hmm. it went too fast. Uh, and I think, you know, is this the case or not? Who knows what they would have worked out long term. But he's just, you know, so desperate for connection and so is she that they bond at that moment. And you have to wonder, is it their relationship or is it they do they need each other? Is it a would it have been a healthy relationship or is it more codependent? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, separately, I just want to note that I weirdly really love the jogging scenes because it talks about a thing that you don't often see in action fiction which is that, yeah, our job involves a lot of running. Literally, the edge runner is, is not entirely metaphorical. And yep. you should jog regularly to get your cardio up. And it's like, it's a neat little moment of like, yes, that's actually a, a valid thing. But also my gamer head was going, okay, he goes to the job and spends his XP on body. And he goes to the job and spends <laughs> his XP. He, he, spends, his, he spends his IP on athletics. You actually can't raise your body. Oh, right, right. But, you know, it's interesting because later on, he will raise his body with cyberware. Um, and I bet you after that point, he no longer needs to jog in order to keep in shape. True, true. So it is the case of, you know, Lucy is uh, doing through hard work what someone can, in, in, in weeks, what someone can do in hours with cyberware. Uh, and that's a case of technology makes things easier. But should technology always make things easier? You know what? Now that you say that, it, I, I never thought of it until you said that. But now you say that, I, I really now realize this episode is very subtly a debate between Maine and Lucy. Maine's trying to be like, hey, buddy, well, here's all the things. Here's here's your road to get you ready for not being a cyber psycho. That's really what a lot of that is. Yeah. Um, to the point where they even shoot up together. I mean, it's really clear. It's like, here's the drugs that will keep you sane. Here's the things you need to do. Here's how you st- st- structure your, your cyber buy. And then Lucy is like going, focus on your body, pay attention to your body. You know, don't let it go to shame. You know, your body's still there for a reason. And so it, it's never explicitly said, but it is kind of the implicit metal versus meat argument that's inherent to cyberpunk. But it was so subtle, I didn't even catch it until we talked about it. Now, I, you say it, I can't unsee it. The whole episode is structured around that debate now that I see it. It's really, really cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, and it's a little thing. Learning how to drive. David could have slotted a skill trip at any time mm-hmm. and known how to drive that car. Uh, and um, even even little things. Uh, you know, the the guy, uh, the, you know, uh, the, guy, the homeless, the unhoused guy mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, he's a cyber psycho. You know, I would love to know his story. Yeah, because that—that's question. You know, where did it go wrong? I, I bet you anything. He's—he's he's a military veteran. Most of that was for the job, and uh, you know, then he got cut loose because uh, his term was up, or he was discharged for whatever reason. You know, they—they they pumped him and pumped him and pumped him full of all this crap until he was uncontrollable, and they said, "Oh, I'm not gonna deal with you anymore." And you know. Uh, as I imagine being a veteran, Chris knows uh, the government's not always very good at taking care of its veterans. Something we've talked about on previous podcasts. Yes, oh, yeah, definitely. The, uh, the, the Punisher review was definitely a lot of that conversation. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's kind of, the, I mean, that is one of the hearts of cyberpunk actually is that um, 
during in, in the cyberpunk backstory, uh, some deep lore here. In the cyberpunk backstory, there's something called the collapse, which happens in the 90s. Right. And the collapse is literally when the United States more or less collapses as a first world, what we call a first world country, mm-hmm. a, leading, a leading world uh, G20 kind of country. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is that there is these gang of four, these various heads of various agencies working together to keep power and they realized that um much the same way nixon does this is happened real that the war on drugs wasn't about the war on drugs the war on drugs was we're not fighting vietnam we need to keep the public you know patriotic and engaged so we're going to do the war on drugs and by the way it just so happens that if we target these drugs we target our 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 political enemies as well because those drugs are more prevalent in those communities Mm -hmm. Um, and if we don't target these drugs if we go softer on these drugs we're okay because they're on, in the communities of our allies, and so uh, cyberpunk tech communities they themselves may have seeded them into. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And uh, cyberpunk takes that to the next level and says, "Okay, well, the war on drugs becomes a literal war on drugs, and they invade central parts of Central and South America with the uh, objective, in air quotes, of uh, taking down these various drug cartels, who are." Uh, often involved in the governments, local governments. Mm-hmm. And at some point, A, this is when cyberware starts becoming prevalent because they just start shoving the cyberware into people without testing it first. There's not a lot of, you know, the FDA is going for years trying to figure out if this is safe or not. They just start shoving into people uh, to make them better soldiers. And then when they decide the war, when everything's over, when the Gang of Four falls, when things are revealed by an, by a reporter and intrepid media, uh, the government says, okay, we're too busy rebuilding. All you people technically weren't military. You were contractors. You're private contractors. That's the way we settle it. They outsourced the war. Mm-hmm. Um, they, 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 uh, they gig economied it. And as a result, they left all these cyber uh, people with experimental cyberware in those places. And they walk back. They literally walk back. It's called the long walk up through Central America to the United States. And this is part of the birth of the nomad factions. Uh, and it is horrible. Uh, Johnny Silverhand was among that number. He uh, was a Marine originally. And at one point, uh, a record label tries to get him to sign with them by re- f- threatening to reveal that he was mm-hmm. MA, uh, he was uh, AWOL. That's mm-hmm. the right term, AWOL. Uh, and that he, uh, he deserted. And instead, he does an album about the whole thing. He says, screw you. He does an album about it. He releases it. And the public support very briefly shifts. And there are some uh, – there's a a brief surgence of veteran care from the government, and he is pardoned. But, of course, it all goes back. But it's – cyberpunk is weird in that it can be hopeful. And we – these days, who would believe that a media can change the world in a positive way, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or a celebrity could. But mm-hmm. there is that built into its DNA, too, that someone with a voice can say something and make a positive change in the world, if only for a moment. That got, that got a little off track. I apologize. Um, there's there's no about. reason to apologize for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, this was, this was a good episode. I mean, in a way, it's the training montage episode, you know? Uh, David moves from being a, 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 geeky little kid to being a full-time edge runner uh and this is so he's in the middle of the gang um and he advances his relationship with Maine. he advances his relationship with lucy 
uh, we get to see what cyberpsychosis is. We're planting the seeds that lead to the rest of the, the big arc. You know, right now we haven't even hit the big arc. We've hit had hints of it, but we haven't hit the big the big overarching plot line. But we're getting those seeds now. And that's what's so interesting about this. Like, like you're right. When we stop here, um, um, we're not going to talk about the the subsequent episodes. But even just these four episodes, this this slightly less than two hours of television, it, there's a lot that happens. Uh, I know I've talked about this before, but I think it's kind of worth reiterating is fast forward in media can feel very uh, thin or vapid or uninteresting because you don't, you, you don't engage anything in depth. This is very tactical about how it does that. And, and it, it, it does a lot of letting your audience fill stuff in. Like you were talking about um, uh, Maine trying to connect with other people. And you actually see that there's a lot of showing rather than telling, but like when he's making out with his girlfriend and simultaneously taking a call from David. Mm-hmm. And he could have just been like, I'm thinking I'll, I'll talk to you later, but he has a moderately lengthy conversation about a job yeah. while he's making out with his woman. And that tells you a lot about where Maine's head's at. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't talk about it. Um, similar, uh, uh, one of the things I like about this episode is up to this point, there was a very strong connectivity with uh, the visuals of 2077, the video game. Um, particularly when people are talking to each other, the the, the phone icon and the text going off screen, it, it's ripped directly from the game. And yet this episode, it starts to break down a little as we go through the montage. But the only character who actually breaks the metaphor of the UI of this is Maine. His lettering gets bigger and jagged and starts to dominate the screen. And again, tells you a lot about Maine, his mindset, his role in the group in a purely visual way. I'm, Which is um, amazing. I'm, re- I'm reminded of, uh, say, Miss Marvel, the Disney mm-hmm. series, or um, uh, Heart Heartbreakers. Uh, it's a Netflix series about uh, two young British boys, uh, high school students who fall in love, uh, based mm-hmm. on the graphic novel series, uh, and both because they're comic related series, bring that visual into the shows mm-hmm. where you have mm-hmm. the, you know, you, at points you have animation overlaid on the live action flowers flowing across the screen, for example, or, you know, uh, and the like, and you see this in here too. They use that, that same concept where they, they use what are essentially out of world animations yep. visible only to the viewer to emphasize text, uh, emphasize plot, emphasize character development, emphasize, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. The way mains things are, are we seeing it through mains eyes or is this just a hint of, Main's personality and future plot are coming through. It's it's very subtle, um, but you also write about this being a compressed storytelling experience. We're so used to now in the West decompressed storytelling as a form, and and decompressed storytelling can be great. But like these four episodes would have been a whole ten episode arc if this were a Netflix series, for example. Right, because because if this had been Netflix, this would have been the arc of David going from just a kid to. Finding, you know, losing his family to finding his family and the relationship between him and Lucy and him settling into his career. There may be a little bit more tacked onto the ends to tie up the Arasaka subplot, but otherwise that's more or less the story. Yeah, it would have um, been, we would have had more mission episodes that were just like one episode that was a mission, for example. Right. And even, like I said, we talked a little bit about how this connects to tabletop gaming and like this is a small campaign mm-hmm. worth of material here. 
I mean, you, you talked about how the first two episodes are more or less your life path. Episode three is your first job. This is kind of your next few jobs before you get to the big, you know, campaign ending job. Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, easily 20, 30 hours of gameplay. Looking yeah, and, at. and you look mm-hmm. at it, you got uh, taking out the game scavengers. That's one, that, that's one, that's one mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, rescuing male, uh, Rebecca. That's another mission. And it's interesting to qu- question whether Rebecca from a game point standing at this point, was her player not there that session? Right. Or was she an NPC <laughs> that a player later picked up? Like, like for example, did Pillar's player lose Pillar and then say, well, I'll play Rebecca now? Right. Or is it a case of like, um, man, I'm just not happy with how Pillar is playing. Can I, can I make a new character? Yeah, why don't you bring a character and make Pillar an NPC and then we'll write him out. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's that's really a fascinating meta from a game table game perspective. Mm-hmm. If we're also talking from the game perspective, I could almost see this more as a one-to-one cyberpunk game with David as the protagonist and all the other people in the gang are equivalent like contacts. So if you've played one-to-one, they have a role they can play and they can do things and they can help out in their the character's heart, basically. So they, give, they ground them for the scenarios they go through. And yeah. this would focus and flow in that same fashion. Or even it, it could even be a, you know table of more free form it's um they call them living communities uh these days they're like uh mucks and muxes and mushes of old uh they're on discord generally and they're a bunch of people and they have they agree to a common rule set in a common world and then gms will run sessions and your character can move from one to another just like um almost like you can do in a um in a living city campaign uh, 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 uh organized play game right mm-hmm. uh, but more uh, smaller group, which means you can have a more comp- comprehensive, the events of this thing, the GM tells them to the people in charge and it affects the world sort of way. Uh, and this was like, you know, one session, only David's player makes it. Then someone else runs it and David and Main's player makes it. Um, that could work, that kind of thing where you have a up and down episodic level. But you could just see that all, you're right. I see, I see, uh, hours and hours multiple sessions in this one episode and it's we're hitting uh the two-hour marker so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i keep talking about this uh, that all day but i mean yeah. uh, I, I think we've, we've hit the my points is that this is quietly brilliant in a lot of ways it is uh there's a lot of there's a lot of this uh i i like to think that these people uh, the, the the writers i mean i know that the writers understand the game because I know they've played it because uh, this was written primarily by uh, a team at CDPR and then adapted by Studio Trigger. Uh, as far as I know, it is the first one they've not directly written themselves. Uh, so that's interesting. And uh, major change was made. Rebecca, in fact, was not in the original script and she was added by Studio Trigger. Um, probably because, partly because they felt that they needed the character depth that she brings to david and pillar uh also i think they just like small anime girls um if you watch their their work small vile anime girls are the kind of suya triggers jam uh but um you see so i know that people who wrote this played the tabletop game and had an understanding of how tabletop games work as well as how video game storytelling works so, right, but it, it's, it's, that, that, it's that balance sorry. of it. You don't hear the dice rolling. That was the only yes. thing I was going to say. But you don't hear the dice rolling, but you can see it. You can, you can see it if you look for it. Yep. Yes. Exactly. 
Sorry. With Chris all of that to, greatness. Yeah, Chris is trying said, to wrap up here. <laughs> are there any final thoughts on the show itself? Dice uh, aside. I want to say thank you for watching it. Thank you from our Telzerine Games for enjoying it, if you, if you did, uh, and for playing uh, our game. That's really important. Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, never in my life did I think, uh, growing up, that I think that one day something I worked on would be something like this, would turn into something like this, and it is totally. an amazing feeling. Uh, I, can, I can only imagine I, uh, how people feel. Uh, about even bigger things. But to me, this is going to be one of the highlights of my life is being able to see, hey, you know, I see where something, some small thing I did, like, okay, uh, as an example, James Hutt, our senior designer, uh, wrote a small screen sheet adventure for the Jumpstart Kit, and he mentioned the drug in it. And in the music video uh, that accompanied Edge Runners, uh, the Netrunner in that uh goes looking for a specific drug and that's the name of the drug is the same drug. <laughs> so seeing small things you've helped create come to life like this has been one of the most amazing and rewarding experiences of my life. That's incredible. Congratulations though, by the way. Th thank you. Thank you. I mean, I imagine I, I, I fully, I fully believe that Sunday, uh, there will be something, and you'll, Chris will be able to do the same thing. And I, I'm guessing Eddie already has from his his vampire days. Bits and pieces, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's 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 always cool to see someone take something you worked on and turn it into something else. And it really is. As much as it's cool to see that, it's, it's nice to see someone. It's nice to see someone pick up the torch and keep moving and add to the world. I, I love being part of a shared world experience. Mm -hmm. Eddie, do you have any last thoughts on the series? Uh, just that from a pure fan perspective i mean it was so exciting to see this uh similar how i felt with 2077 um in the sense of, of yes it, it had bugs blah 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 blah. um but that's triple a video games all over it right um it, it was it was exciting to see something that i was a fan of back in the day become this huge i never thought it would have been video game i never thought it would have been anime um and so seeing something that i grew up loving getting a new lease on life is just really exciting and then to separately find out it's actually good was just mind blowing because isn't that nice? It could have been like because I'll be I'll be blunt. It could have been not great, and I still would love it. I, it I am known for no loving garbage media. I love classic Doctor Who, for example. But you know, seeing it be a genuinely good show was was really really exciting. Well, as someone who, whose favorite Doctor is the Seventh Doctor, I understand. Well, you're on the right podcast. Yeah. What Jay's saying is the Seventh Doctor is a garbage doctor. That's what I'm hearing. The Seventh, doctor's, the seventh Doctor's writers were garbage writers. The Seventh Doctor was great. Yes, that is the correct answer. There you go. All right. Jay, if people are looking to find you out in the world and online, where can they find you? I am not particularly online myself, but if you are looking for Artel Zorian Games on social media and you just have to search for Artel Zorian Games in your social media of choice, uh, you will find me because I am the person behind those accounts. Uh, and uh, I encourage you to follow the company because uh, we have cool and exciting things coming forward. Excellent. Um, Eddie, before I ask you that question, what can people expect for our next episode? Um, yeah, you jumped that on me, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so uh, next episode, we're going to... Um, 
do something different. We'll talk more about it in a couple of days, actually. But um, uh, Chris and I are going to spend the next uh, several episodes talking about the Armor Wars comic book run of Iron Man and a little bit of Captain America. So that's going to be fun. Oh, we'll talk wow. more about that in detail. Uh, are you going to talk about the, uh, the adaption, too? No, not yet. Because um, it's the, not, not yet. yet. Probably well, no, 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 no. Up. The old animated adaption. What? I didn't know there was an animated one. In the in the in the nineties Iron Man uh, animated series that you know they back then Marvel was putting out Iron Man, Spider Man, Spider Man's and X Men are the most famous, but there was an Iron right. Man one too. They did a full Armor Wars arc. Oh wow! Okay, I have to dig it up. Maybe we'll add that slot that in some point in the future. Yeah, <laughs> you can watch it on Disney Plus. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, we're gonna cover the 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 original uh, comics. That was a fun run. It was. It really was. Uh, but until then, you can find me uh, uh, at pugsteady.com. That's my website, P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. Um, I have accounts floating around on uh, Mastodon, Twitter, co-host, and whatever the weekly du jour of social media is right now. But so pugsteady.com or Dark Issue Discords are really the best place to find me these days. Excellent. Um, Jay, thanks again for coming out. And Eddie, thanks again for always dealing with the zaniness that is our podcast. Woo-hoo. And if folks are looking for me, you can find me on the social medias at Dark Crew Studios. I'm still on Twitter for some reason. I'm also on Macedon at Darker underscore Hugh. You can come to my website, but your best bet is to come to the Discord. And you can hear me complaining and praising the joy of rewriting the Oboros game system to de-Westernfy it. So, all that said, have a great one. See you later. Bye, all <laughs>